Welcome, everybody, to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. This is Dr. Mario Sacasa, and just grateful to have another great episode to share with you. So, here we go. All right. Let me ask you this. Do you think that there is a way to talk about race and social inequality that is not ideologically driven? You think that's even possible? Man, I sure hope so. And I genuinely believe that there is. Because I think before we jump into politics and policy, we have to remember that we need to put people and their experiences and communities at the center of these difficult conversations. We have to go to dialogue, appeal to dialogue first, before we start moving into plans of action. So joining me on the show today is Dr. Angel Parham. Reverend Joseph H. Fitcher, Distinguished Professor of Social Science and Associate Professor of Sociology at Loyola University in New Orleans. Dr. Parham is a scholar on the issue of race and class and brings just a wonderful attitude and intellect and sharpness and genuineness and perspective to this conversation. So in today's show, we discuss the importance of dialoguing with people who think differently than us. But more so, we need to intentionally be putting ourselves in culturally diverse circles. We also discuss the need to resist to jumping to quick conclusions or judgments when we see something we disagree with, how to consider both empirical data and a group's lived experience, how to disagree with charity, and the role the church should play when it comes to race. As with all my shows, we are trying just to find, you know, hope, just trying to find hope, man. Hope in the hard things because God is present and wants to shine his light in all the darkness that exists in the world, in our culture, and in our hearts. So that's what we're striving for with this show and with all my episodes of the Always Hope Podcast. So when it is done, please check me out on Facebook or Instagram. Leave your questions, leave any comments at Dr. Mario Sacasa. There it is. I'd be happy to talk with you there if you have any questions or comments following this episode or any of the shows. So let's get into this conversation with Dr. Angel Parham. Dr. Angel Parham, welcome to the Always Hope podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing well, and it is a pleasure to be here with you. Oh, it, the, the pleasure and the delight is all mine. So thank you so much for giving me the time to have this conversation. I'm, I'm deeply, deeply intrigued uh, and grateful for, for your expertise and willingness to, to talk about race and racism. Um, this is a conversation that we've been pushing back for like months now. I think we, we wanted to have it initially, record this back in October. But then I thought it was right before the election. I was like, well, let's wait till after the election. So we scheduled it after the election. And then I got COVID and was out for two months. And then more stuff just has just keeps coming. Um, and so uh, I'm grateful to, to be able to, to talk to you about it. Um, but just by introduce, take a second here, if you can, just introduce yourself to the audience and, uh, and what, what's brought you to this, this topic and to this field of study. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So I guess I'd have to start with what brought me to sociology mm-hmm. in the first place. Yeah, sounds great. And I, I think it's um, part of how God made me, honestly. <laughs> so when I was very young, you know, I, I think I was in maybe um, seventh grade or so, um, 
I made up my own society and <laughs> I, you know, wrote down rules for it. And I, I kind of got my idea for this society, which was called Arlandia. <laughs> um, so I made up Arlandia because as I looked out at the world, I felt that things were wrong. <laughs> that, you know, with some, um, with some tweaking and redoing of institutions, I could make it right. There you go. Um, so Arlandia had a school system. Um, I actually put together citizenship documents and tried to recruit citizens amongst my friends and my mother. Um, my mother, upon hearing about um, the requirements of living in this society, declined citizenship. Um, so, for instance, um, let's see. It, it was very, you know... It, as I look at it now, it was somewhat on the authoritarian edge um, yeah. because I was just determined that things were going to be better. So, and, school, and the way that in, we see it is always what's going to be better. So, yeah, I could see how that would course, always. I could see how that always would, would air on that, especially as your seventh grade self, for sure. That's yeah. that's very appropriate development. Yeah. So you're fine. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I had a, a really um, kind of scarily intensive tracking system in education where kids were tracked from like elementary school, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to just make this more efficient. You know, you can tell who's going to do what, you know, we we'll just get that streamlined. Um, people could not get married unless they had like this really intensive premarital counseling. They had to do a certain number of hours of volunteering in the, um, you know, the, the children's church and nursery room in order to get like actual real experience with children before we inflict them on, you know, their own children. So, you know, by the time my mother finished reading and, and you know, kind of grasped the enormity of how controlled her life was going to be, she said, thanks, but no thanks. Um, but I did get one recruit from my seventh grade class. Uh -huh. So, um, all of that to say, now I have moved on from Arlandia, safe to say. Um, it wasn't the focus of your doctoral research, Arlandia? <laughs> it was not. It was not. Um, but I, I've just always been interested in that. You know, I was interested in intentional communities hmm. when I was in middle school and high school. I was interested in alternative societies like the Amish and um, the kibbutz movement in Israel. You know, so... Those were the things that always fascinated me as, you know, kind of these, these alternative visions of a better society. So um, I think it was a natural fit for sociology. And yeah. when I discovered sociology in college, I said, yeah, this is this, is, this looks good. Um, and so, you know, over the years, of course, my views have been moderated and are, are more nuanced than they were before. Um, now, the question of how I got specifically into looking at race is another interesting one, because I didn't start my scholarly career focused on race. Um, I do want to stop I, you just for one second, though. I, want, yeah. I just want to comment on like your journey to sociology, and I hope my listeners who are, who are listening, I have a number of young adults, and, and just... Mm -hmm there's something beautiful about honoring like you are who you are and like you 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 couldn't call yourself a sociologist or studying sociology in seventh eighth grade or eighth grade or ninth grade or whatever but it was like when you got to college you're like that's it like that that's the word <laughs> that's that's what i was looking for like that 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 makes sense to me and in some ways i'll say like that kind of mirrors my own experience with psychology and counseling that i started wanting to be a doctor i remember being in second grade and 
they, you, the question was, what did you want to be when you grew up? And it was, I want to be a teacher and I want to be a doctor. And, and I thought it was medicine. My dad's a do- medical doctor. And so I thought it was that. And then it wasn't until college similar that I studied psychology and I was like, no, that's it. Like, that's the type of, that's what I want to practice is, is emotional health, not, not physical health. So anyways, just encouraging people who are listening, you know, just there's something beautiful about just knowing who you are and, and just letting, letting the right opportunities to, to present themselves, um, as, as you're on the journey. So anyways, but absolutely. I think that's so important. And I do think that young people should listen to that and not feel like they should go in a direction that, you know, the world tells them Mm. this is where you'll make the most money. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is one of the worst mistakes we could make if that's, what's going to channel the the direction we take. So right. I think you're exactly right. Yeah, great. So you were saying I interrupted you. So how, how did you get into then race yeah. as, as a field of of uh, expertise and, and discipline and study specifically within the larger umbrella of mm-hmm. sociology? So I mean, I think it was always there in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's it's hard to be a black woman in America and not think about race, right? So, you know, I was always taking courses on race in college, Um, you know, so it was there, but I didn't necessarily identify myself as a scholar whose focus was on race um, until actually really after I finished my doctoral work. so certainly I had taken coursework, you know, I'd done lots of reading and so on and so forth. I had started um, in the area of immigration, which actually is often tied to race in many ways, uh, because many of our immigrants um, since the 1960s have been people of color. And so scholars of immigration are also often um, looking at the dynamics of race. Um, as they look at how newcomers to our society are integrated or uh, encounter obstacles here. And so I started looking at immigration. And then as I moved to New Orleans, um, the immigration I had been looking at before I came here was contemporary Haitian immigration. So immigrants coming, you know, in the the 80s and, and beyond from Haiti. But then I moved to New Orleans and found out that there was this historic population that had come in after the Haitian Revolution to New Orleans in the early 19th century. And they had a, a really significant impact, both culturally and racially, on the city. And so as I started to learn more about that, what was fascinating is that because Louisiana was under three different kinds of administrations, first the French, and then the Spanish, and then the Americans, um, it experienced um, very different kinds of culture and different approaches to race and racialization. And it was through that kind of study, which I started almost 20 years ago now, that I started to really um, become fascinated by the ways that different um, administrations would structure race and racial relationships. And so it was really um, moving here. And so much of my research has been shaped by living here. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. In New Orleans, I mean, we've been here for about nine years and I have deeply appreciated just the 
the complexity of the history of of, of this city and uh, how many people and, and, and races and cultures have their little piece in it, you know, and it's, it really is, you know, gumbo is, is the appropriate analogy uh, to, to use here in terms of just the variety of stuff that that's swimming in, in this soup. Um, so wonderful. Well, yeah, I'm grateful, grateful that, that, that that's been your experience and you kind of, you know, died, dived into the study here. So I guess as, as we're kind of moving in through the interview here, um, a question I would like to ask you is, you know, you've been studying this now for, for 20 years, as you said, and, and kind of doing comparison historically and then you know, here in the city, but then obviously with contemporary issues. H- how would you say this conversation about race has changed uh, over the last 20 years and probably even more immediately over the last couple of years? Um, w- mm-hmm. what, is the, what have you seen have been um, progress or, or regress or just changes, I guess, in general that you've seen towards this conversation? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, so I, I guess there are multiple dimensions that I could approach that question from. Mm-hmm. One dimension would be just the the tenor of the national conversation um, and how that has changed. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, beginning um, especially with the the killing of Trayvon Martin and the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, there's been um, a very different kind of orientation toward the public discussion of race in ways that I think are important and good in some ways, and then in other ways that perhaps have have made things more problematic. Um, So what I think is good is that this discussion needs to be had and the emergence of Black Lives Matter um, and the, the struggle against police brutality and police killings is something that absolutely needs to be on the forefront of our conscience, of our discussion, and of our action. And so in that sense, um, I think that really had to happen. We needed for that to happen. And I think that the, the rise of social media also really spurred that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so... I remember, you know, in the early um, 2000s, it wasn't the case that everyone had a cell phone. You know, I was a very late adopter myself, <laughs> pretty resistant. And then even when I got one, it wasn't a smartphone. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think as we have gotten smartphones and in every hand um, and social media, injustices that had always been happening became much clearer to everyone that they were happening and it became easier to spread the word about them happening. And so in that sense, it's been very, very important. And that's been a good development because we need to have that conversation and we need to bring these injustices to light. Absolutely. So in that sense, I think it's been really, really important. Um, On the other hand, it then has, you know, kind of made others who've been resistant to having this conversation feel that they have to engage with it somehow, whether or not they want to engage with it. Hmm. Um, And so then you get a, you know, kind of backlash as well. And honestly, I think part of the problem is not so much um, what protesters are bringing to light, which they're only bringing to light, you know, what the problems are. 
the the real issue is that we have not developed any way of of being in conversation and relationship with each other across these long lasting divides. Right. Right. Um, and so, and, and also because we are a hyper segregated society, segregated by race and by class. And so when, because of that. And by ideology now more and more, I would say. That's you know. right. That's right. Mm-hmm. But because of this segregation, residential mm-hmm. segregation by race and class, educational segregation by race and class, you generally don't cultivate real and lasting relationships with people who are very different from you in terms of race and class. Mm -hmm. And that lack of relationship, um, conversation, empathy, and care makes it very easy to get into these, you know, kind of polarized ruts. And so my reality does not resemble your reality. And so that gets translated into I am right and you are wrong. You know, rather than trying to actually really listen. Um, and more and more, I feel that the capacity to listen empathetically is something that we very much need to cultivate. Yeah. Because instead, what you get is people on various different perspectives or sides of the issue just listening to others who talk and understand in the same way. And they are unwilling to to grant when someone different from themselves might have a point that they need to seriously consider, even though it really shakes up their reality. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be um, a startling lack of nuance in the ability to say, okay, you know, what the Black Lives Matter protesters are saying, this is something I really need to engage with. This this is something I really need to do. Maybe I don't embrace every aspect of the movement, but I absolutely embrace the fact that it's unacceptable to have people shot down in the streets or in their home. And that I absolutely understand that there is systematic racial bias and how this happens. So let, me, be- let me stop mm-hmm. here for a second, if I can. I mean, it yeah. just it, that that point that you're making, okay. And so in terms of like what 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 has made this what has been good and what has not been good is that on one hand, social media has allowed for more forefront, more um, uh, I don't say openness. It's allowed it to become more in the forefront in terms of like the, these are things that are happening. We have recordings of them. We can look at all these circumstances, Trayvon Martin, um, as you spoke about, and, and others with regards to, uh, you know, all the racial pr- police brutality and, and looking at social media as a way to to be aware of the injustice and to have almost something to do. You know, it's kind of like a, like a, there's there, you can act now by, by engaging that, whether that's mm-hmm. insufficient action, who knows, but at least you feel like you're doing something. Um, while at the same time, though, it's a double-edged sword because what it's also created is is a further polarization, you know, and that's why I, I said that in terms of segregation. So maybe segregation is corrected, but a further polarization along ideological lines, which is then that there is no social media doesn't doesn't tolerate nuance and doesn't tolerate conversation. I mean, as we're doing right now, like 
when I guess we're using social media since the podcast, but usually on a 150 character tweet, you don't allow freedom and room for depth of a conversation like this to take place. And so we see this, this further polarization kind of taking place. I can speak to my own example in this, that when I was getting my master's in 2006, when we would have conversations about diversity, um, you know, it seemed like there was still, I mean, still room for conversation. I would, I would present my points, um, if I had, if I agreed with something that was said or disagree with things, but I felt like there was at least in my counseling program, there was openness and conversation, um, that, that was allowed to be had. But then when I went for my, my doctorate and then even here recently kind of going through some continuing education, I feel like diversity training now, it, it, it this is my opinion, but I just feel like it, it's not about conversation. And with certain words like that, that seem kind of provocative, you know, talking about like interrogating your bias was one that really kind of stuck to me. That was a phrase that, that this, this group used. And I was like, well, what does that mean to like, why do we, I mean, yes, we need a question. We need to be open and be aware. Like you said, be empathetic with people. We need to walk a mile in another person's shoes, but interrogation. I mean, th- those type of words to me seem like they're more like a call to arms rather than a, than a, than a dialogue and a desire to have real conversation uh, with one another. So, I, I mean, I don't know, I could be wrong, but at least this is my experience that, that I've seen. Um, what, what do you think, Angel? So I think there is something to that. Um, I think we have kind of circled around, uh, you know, a certain way of thinking that is the way that one has to think. Mm-hmm. Um, order to engage with issues of difference and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I, I, as I have gone to some different kinds of diversity training, some of them I found to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them I found, you know, even as a scholar who focuses on issues of race and justice, you know, I just wonder what is this actually doing, especially to people who are already resistant. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're coming into that kind of training and you're kind of already part of the choir, okay, this is great. This just affirms everything that you already know. But if you're coming in and you feel ambivalent or defensive or um, worried or, you know, wary, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. there, there really isn't going to be any room for you to express those concerns because the tenor of the thing is generally to kind of get you <clears throat> get you into the proper form or the proper position with respect to the issues. So for instance, mm-hmm. uh, I direct me, a couple- Hold on a second there. So you, just so I hear that right, it, it, to get you into the proper form, when you're saying that the form that like, just to think what they think, is what is that what you're saying? Or is that too, too, too strong? Um, and to, yes, and to have the analysis, the same analysis as the trainers. Mm-hmm. Um, I have seen, for instance, sometimes when, when we're having conversations like this, my um, white friends or colleagues who I can see them, I can. it looks literally as if they are walking on eggshells while they're talking. They look concerned as they're talking, like, am I putting my words in the right way mm-hmm. so that I won't be attacked or I won't be considered racist or, you know, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And I feel, you know, real compassion for them because, 
that's how I feel. You know, I feel like I can speak, you know, I feel like I'm happy to hear what you have to say. You know, like mm -hmm. if it's something I disagree with, then I will ask you more questions, but I'm not going to jump down your throat. I'm not going to, you know, I am more concerned about people feeling that they've got to toe a certain line and just be quiet than I am about people actually being able to have disagreements. What scares me the most is a mass of silent or silenced people who feel that they just have to, on the surface, agree with what everything that they're hearing, and then they just go home and teach their children something totally different, <laughs> and get more and more angry because they feel that they can't express themselves. And I feel that this is counterproductive. Right. And I say this, even if the views they have are views that I would disagree with, I still want them to be able to discuss that because, um, and to, you know, to have a way that they can talk through it or ask questions because otherwise, you know, when you get these kind of, um, formal or informal um, sanctions, you know, for um, a comment you made or, or a look you gave, it shuts people up very quickly. They learn very quickly what they've got to say. And I have been leading um, some faculty who teach at classical schools in uh, a reading group that puts the text of Black intellectuals into conversation with classic texts of the Western canon. You know, so we'll read Plato and we'll read Frederick Douglass. You know, we'll read um, Aristotle and we'll read, you know, um, W.E.B. Du Bois. So we are putting the, the text into conversation. We're reading text, you know, like The Souls of Black Folk, where Du Bois is talking about the Reconstruction era um, and how terribly it was bungled and, you know, the injustices there. We read the autobiography of Oloda Equiano, who was kidnapped and enslaved and later became an, um, free and an abolitionist. We read all of these texts that have difficult ideas and difficult history, um, and we talk about them. And I had um, someone who was in one of these groups say, you know, I really want to understand this, and I'm just so longing for a place where I can be heard and not be attacked and can ask honest questions. And I'm really grateful for this group uh, because we are learning hard things and I don't sugarcoat it. You know, I'm not trying to sugarcoat anything. It's a, it's been a, a, a horrifying history of, of racial oppression and death. Um, but there is a way to engage that history that is not hopeless and there is a way to engage that history that allows people to develop an understanding and allows for their hearts to be changed. You cannot, you, you can't force something like that. Of course, we do sometimes just need to have laws and people don't agree and you just need to have the laws like desegregation. You aren't going to get people to agree in their hearts. You just need to pass the laws. There are always going to be things like that that need to be changed. Absolutely. But that is just the tip of the iceberg of what needs to happen. Once we've changed the laws or changed the practices, there's still work to be done and building relationships and having hard conversations is part of that. 
And we have never learned how to do that. So, I mean, without jumping too quickly into this, I guess like, you know, what do, how do we do this? I mean, like, that, I guess that what, what's the better way? I mean, your, propo- your proposal is beautiful in terms of like, okay, let's read um, and let's have these conversations. And that works in the environment that you're speaking about, which is with educators working in classical education. This fits perfectly within that environment. But, you know, if, if I'm just taking a diversity training at my job and this group comes in and, you know, they offer these thoughts, how can a run-of-the-mill employee feel the freedom to be able to have this conversation or to say something that they may object with, that they may say something, you know, that that isn't part of the narrative, that doesn't fit the the, the mold that the presenters would, would want or that the, the their, their, their bosses or work would want. Um, what would you say to somebody in that situation? I think it's difficult. Um, I think what is difficult is that, again, we haven't developed spaces or practices that allow us to bridge differences well. And so this can't all be done through diversity trainings at work. Mm-hmm. That That's never going to work. We have to get at more fundamental issues. I mean, you can begin at work with cultivating relationships with people who are different from yourself and really listening to them. So, you know, that would be a start. Um, But you're still going back often to a segregated neighborhood (laughs) and then sending your kids to segregated schools, both by race and by class and so on. So at some point, this has to start happening in a more thorough and integrated way throughout our society. Um, Depending on the workplace, you know, it may be easier or more difficult to do this. So at a university, it's fairly easy because we're all about reading and mm-hmm. thinking and talking, right? Right. Or should I be. think uh, we should be. That's <laughs> <Or> right. Should <laughs> be. <laughs> liberal <laughs> university, liberal studies in the, in the real sense of the word should allow for intellectual diversity and in, in conversation. But keep going. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> that always right. the case. Um, you know, in other settings, I it, it's hard to say. Um, I don't know if you're in a, a law office. Um, mm-hmm. How does that translate? Um, I'm not sure, you know, I'm sure there are things you could do to be in conversation with each other on these issues. You know, is that something that they want to do? You know, is that something the leadership feels is important to do? That would be the main question. But I am always, because I'm an educator, thinking about this from the preventive end. You know, how do we start at the beginning in ways that can lead to this being a natural thing so that we're not trying to catch up when somebody's 55 at work at a diversity training, <laughs> you know, right. like That's why right. we waited that late. Um, so for instance, one of my daughters is working on an essay on um, settlement in the Oklahoma territory in 1889. And she was given some source text. And the source texts, you know, talk about the Homestead Act and talk about the settlers going in. Of course, these are settlers of European descent. And, um, you know, neither of the source texts had anything to say about the Native Americans in that area. Hmm. And so I said, okay, all that sounds great, but weren't there people living there already? (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) So what happened to them? You know, it's, it's a simple question. 
Um, so I'm not trying to politicize anything, but I am trying to say part of the history seems to have dropped off the face of the earth. Um, and one of the reasons I'm so attracted to classical education is because of the respect for text and for primary text. And I think one of the things um, that I like to do is as much as possible to bring in those primary texts from that historical era and let people read them for themselves. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to put my ideological spin on it. You don't have to put yours on it. Let's look at the original text and what was actually happening mm -hmm. and ask a series of questions. Uh, and I, I think just getting used to doing that, you know, that is part of building empathy right. is thinking through some of those things. Hey everybody, I hope that you are enjoying this conversation that I'm having with Dr. Angel Parham. Just taking a quick break here to encourage you to check us out at faithinmarriage.org. If you and your spouse are interested in coming on a marriage retreat, we would love to have you. Full list of those retreats for 2021 and we're kind of getting started to, to start thinking about 2022. Uh, the list for 2021 at least is up there. So please check it out if you're interested in coming on one of our retreats. Or if you want to just find out more about speaking engagements that I'm up to or uh, that Jason Angelette is up to, you can find out more on faithinmarriage.org. Yeah, in, in, in being open to what is actually said, you know, I, I, I think sometimes, like you said, you think about these things from their vantage point as an educator. I tend to think of these things as my vantage point as a therapist, you know, and looking at this right now, it's like big marriage counseling session that needs to happen between the left and the right and trying to say, okay, how do we, how do we come together here? If not, you know, we're heading for divorce. And, and sometimes, you know, what you do in marriage counseling is that even, even when somebody, when one spouse says something, um, it, they may not say it right, you know, it may not come out of their mouth right, but they're trying to communicate something that they're experiencing. And for whatever reason, they can't get it out of their mouth correctly. It's like, okay, like I can, I can choose to, to flare up and to react to that which was said, or I can try to attend to what they're actually trying to communicate and, and take mm -hmm. that point where I'm trying to say, okay, like, let me try to listen to what's actually you're communicating. And then we can respond from there. Um, but I think that's, that's the way I've kind of approached, I think what's happened over the last few years is. Um, has been that there's been this kind of sense of okay enough, you know, and in in wanting to genuinely have these conversations of race now, and I'm all for the protests, you know, and, and I believe that people have every right. It's America; you have every right to do that. Uh, of course, there are opportunistic individuals who just want to see the whole system burn, and they want to take advantage of people, and and so whatever violence happens in those things, I don't believe encompasses the the, the full protest. It 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 is. It is individuals being opportunistic and just like we've seen here, things anyways, people just taking advantage of other people's vulnerabilities, but that doesn't discredit from whatever message is trying to be communicated in the protest itself. Um, and I think that that's the place where there has to be some conversation. You know, the, Colin Kaepernick, I, I have to say, to some degree, I'm, I'm a little bothered by the NFL. I'm, I'm just going to say this right now, because f when Colin Kaepernick first took the knee, they everybody blackballed him, you know, and didn't want him to be part of 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 the NFL at all, and 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 
and then now two years later, there's commercials being run, you know, about racial segregation, <laughs> segregation, and let's end this and let's do this together. And it's it's like, is it just now because it's a it's it's an easy sell, like that you can make these commercials? You know, is it just now because there's an opportunity to profit from it? And if that's the case, I think that's even worse, in my in my estimation. You know, but I get that I get what some of the criticism against Colin Kaepernick. Folks like Charles Barkley and Stephen A. Smith were African-American commentators of sports on, on ESPN and TNT. Um, their criticism was, it's great to draw attention to this issue, but but what are we doing about it? You know, what what now? What what's it, You draw attention, but what's a proposed solution to the problem? And I think that's where, if there was a valid critique of Colin Kaepernick, it's, it's that that I've heard. Now, again, we've had other individuals, other sports figures who don't get the same attention and Quan Bolden, work that he was doing. Um, uh, Drew Holiday here locally, the work that he was doing. I mean, there's a lot of athletes who, who have been doing a lot of good with, with their platform. And so not just drawing attention for the sake of drawing attention, but to actually do something with that attention. And I think that's when that's been some of the critiques. So I, I'm just proposing, I know there's I just said a lot in terms of the, the various angles of it. I'm a sports fan, so I do watch these things uh, rather closely. Um, but just interested, again, in, in, in wanting to make sure that that we do have dialogue, but that dialogue moves something, you know, that yes, understanding absolutely is the first point, but then what, what's the next step? Like, what do, what do we do with that understanding? Do we just go on in our way or do we, do we actually engage in, in, in something? So you obviously have to get to the point of policy mm-hmm. and making, um, but that does start with listening. So let's take Black Lives Matter, police brutality, and someone who feels like they they don't resonate with the Black Lives Matter um, platform. Now, I'm going to say that even the person who doesn't resonate with the platform is still probably going to agree that police brutality and murders are wrong. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, so, I think I, I can speak for probably some of my listeners who I know I engage in this conversation with. You know, the 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 mantra, this is a separation, of course, between the slogan "Black Lives Matter" and in the organization. Mm-hmm. In the organization, it, you know, I don't stand for it. I'll say that. You know, I I'm, I'm concerned by some of the Marxist in in tendencies and desires to want to tear down the family system, things that I value deeply that I think are actually the solutions to these problems, um, starting at the most local level. But but nevertheless, the 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 the, the issue uh, that's being, uh, the, the attention is being drawn to, uh, I'm for. But again, like the divergence then becomes, well, what do we, what, what do, we do with it? So, sorry, right. So what I was just going to say is, in terms of, you know, those who have been very critical of Black Lives Matter, but who do agree that we have a problem of racism, systematic racism and police brutality. Um, you know, it's a matter of listening well to what protesters are saying. That doesn't mean you have to embrace every part of the platform, but you do, especially if you're a Christian, need to truly listen and have your heart broken by what you're hearing. Um, and then Okay, what is the next step? Um, I think it was heartening to see last summer during the protests that there were many white Americans who are very supportive of those protests, very supportive of systematic change. And so that I see to be progress. Um, So what kind of change? I had a a wonderful conversation just recently with a, a friend from college 
who has subsequently become um, a police officer and for uh, several years was a police chief uh, in a city in the Northeast. And so he came to speak to my students about you know policing and the protest and um, the idea of defunding the police and so on. And it was incredibly refreshing. Um, I should also say he's an African-American man um, who came from very challenging circumstances when he was young. So, um, but what he told me and told us was so important. And I, I haven't heard the kinds of things that he was talking about in, in as much of the public discussion. So for instance, he explained that when he was police chief, he implemented an approach to policing that was really engineered to generate trust. And what he did was very simple. He gave um, the police officers individual cell phones, and those officers could give those cell phone numbers to everyday citizens and say, if you see something suspicious or concerned, just give me a call. So you're not calling the anonymous 911 number. You're not calling the anonymous police department that you feel has been brutalizing your community or has actually been brutalizing your community. You are calling this individual whom you trust, who is a police officer. And that is very different than placing trust in the entire police department. Hmm. So he emphasized building relationships with individual officers so that even if I'm in um, a hyper-surveilled community where there's a problem with the police department, I know that this particular officer is a good person. And so that's going to be my go-to. I'm going to call that person yeah. rather than 911. And he said they got so much information from that that they were sometimes able to stop crimes before they happened. Because people would call and say, they just left, they're in this car, it's this license plate, they're armed, here's what they're going to do. And that doesn't happen without reservoirs of trust. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen, you know, where I'm just going to blindly call 911 and I don't know who it is or, you know, mm. <laughs> how they're going to come at us. Mm. You know, you call to try to get help and you end up having people dead. Mm -hmm. So um, during his tenure, crime fell precipitously um, and so did police violence, wow. right? Um, he also described uh, a meeting that he had with young people who had run afoul of the criminal justice system. And he was just telling them, honestly, you know, we really care about you. We love you. We, we, we want to get things right. Um, we're not here to try to harm you and put you in prison. Let, let's figure out how to do this. And one young man came up to him afterward and said, I've never had another man say that he loved me. You know, so this was just a very human approach, building relationships, really caring for people. Um, you know, and then there are other aspects. So it's come under the, you know, the, the rubric or the kind of the description of defund the police. But that doesn't necessarily mean take all funding away from the police. A lot of it means to redistribute or reconsider how we're funding um, public safety. And there is a legitimate case to be made for having more social workers and more counselors. 
involved or at the scene to try to de-escalate what can often happen when you go in guns blazing or when that's the primary approach, right? So the language may not be attractive. Mm-hmm. Defund the police, right? It sounds very simplistic, you know, very yeah. negative. But again, you have to listen. You've got to listen to the whole thing. Some people do literally mean defund the police and dismantle mm-hmm. them. Not everyone who says defund the police means that. And this is where it gets into nuance. Is that what they actually mean? What do they really mean? This means looking for um, news sources, podcast talks of people who hold that view and taking the time to actually listen. Yeah. To actually listen. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate um, the the desire and the need for community i think that's that's what i'm holding on to right now is that your friend the the police chief the willingness to put his cell phone the cell phone numbers of all the the officers you know in into the hands of the people in the community so that they can actually engage where it's not about the system it's about the person and so i'm i'm dealing with an individual and i have trust and support from this individual um, rather than just the system as a whole and I think that that's a that's a brilliant, you know. That's real. That really is. I I believe Malcolm Gladwell. I had a a couple of years there where I was just knee deep in in Malcolm Gladwell between his books and his podcast. And so I I couldn't I can't remember if it was in one of his books that I was reading or audio book that I was listening to or a podcast that he shares a story of um, something similar um, it, where it was they just de- delivered turkey dinners. You know the police the police. Um, uh, district, you know, the whatever I'm trying to say, the precinct, they just delivered turkey dinners to everybody kind of in their community. And it was small, simple things like that for Thanksgiving. It was small, simple things like that that allowed for for an establishment of trust um, in a relationship to actually happen. And I think sometimes that's the concern when, 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 we're, when, when we get too general. And I think s- even, with, even with slogans, like I don't like the slogan defund police. I'll say that. I, I, I agree with what you're saying in terms of 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 looking at at police accountability, uh, looking at ways that money is 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 being used, but you know maybe that can't be put in a slogan, you know, and and maybe the slogan turns me off and prevents me, and, and maybe I have to take responsibility for that, and and I do, and I'm saying that on there, I I do, but I don't like the slogan. I, I think that the slogan sends a bad a, a different message um, than the one that 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 we're trying to to articulate. Now again, is that everybody? No. Is that some people? Yeah. This is kind of the downfall of, of a marketing savvy age where we just need kitschy phrases, you know, mm-hmm. to, and somehow a phrase or slogan is is what's going to capture, you know, the emotion or, or the sentiment. Um, I, I don't I don't know. Um, but but I think nevertheless, like the, 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 the point is, is engagement, you know, at the individual level and being open then to to the culture into what 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 is really being represented um, by these by 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 a particular group, um, and so uh, I believe positive messages also play a role into this. I know we're talking about individual kind of conversations with with people, but I also believe that you know our media and how we consume certain media and how that influences our our perceptions. Um, I know you and I have talked before about Black Panther and the and, and the beauty of that movie, um, and and. I, I still think that, you know, I know the Green Book won the Oscar that year, but I think it was a mistake. I think Black Panther had a greater impact 
in the community that it was trying to serve in my estimation. And obviously, God rest his soul, Chadwick Boseman, you know, passed away here recently. Um, and so I think, I guess that's my point is that like one would be, yes, individual conversations, what we're doing right now, um, w- what we strive to do with people who, who, who look and think differently than us. But then also what media are we surrounding ourselves with? So, but, but like, but we just have to be sensitive then to what are the messages about a particular race or culture um, or religion um, or a group of people that we ingest and we have to be open to then saying, okay, is this, is this leaving me with a positive perspective, an honest perspective of, of the life that this individual is, is having or these groups of people are having, or, or is it only making me feel more judgmental against them? No, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, and, you know, I, I think we also have to make an effort to be in diverse media circles, uh, but that takes effort. Mm-hmm. It, it takes effort to do that. So, you know, if I hear, um, you know, about a group that, you know, from one perspective, it, it sounds, you know, very unwise to me or, you know, kind of crazy to me as, you know, I might think, oh, let me go to their site and hear what they have to say about this, you know, and um, I, I do that systematically so that I can hear from their own mouth and not through the filter of someone else. Mm-hmm. Because when I hear from their own mouth, it usually is more nuanced. You know, sometimes there, there still are, um, you know, extremes that they're saying that I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a problem, right. <laughs> you know, but there, there are usually aspects of it that are a little more nuanced. Um, and the other way that I think about this too, in terms of listening is that there are different, there are different dimensions of listening. Uh, we have to listen for different things. We need to listen for empirical truth, existential truth, and spiritual truth, especially when we're attending to ideas or positions that bother us hmm. that um, we don't like. So empirical truth, okay, I don't like this, I don't agree with this. Um, what kind of, you know, objective information can I find about this? Are, are there objective studies that have gathered data on this that I can use to try to better understand what they're saying? You know, so in terms of systematic racism, there's plenty of data out there on um, uneven policing by race, right? Um, so empirically, look for the studies, look for the data. Existentially, you know, what is it that is happening at the center of a person's soul, their personhood? What is, what is it the cry of their heart? Um, and, you know, the, if you can try to understand the cry of a person's heart, that doesn't mean you have to agree with how they are, they are expressing that cry, but you do need to try to understand that cry. Hmm. And that's what I think of as the existential is that, you know, if you have a group of people engaged in rioting, no, I I don't endorse the rioting, but what is the cry of their heart that drove them to the rioting? That's what I need to understand. Um, Right. Even with the storming of the Capitol, which was horrific, just Mm -hmm. horrific, Mm -hmm. you know, really frightening. I need to understand what is the cry of their heart? Hmm. What is at the heart of that? Because if we don't get to the heart of that, it's going to keep happening in one violent form or another. That's right. And that's why I get at listening for existential truth. I can be 
completely horrified by someone's behavior and still need to understand where that cry of hurt and pain is coming from. Because if I don't understand that, I am never going to be able to address the situation. Hmm. Never. I can say you're wrong, you're ignorant, you know, but I don't really understand you. Um, and this is part of what I think is a gift of sociology is that we are taught to observe carefully and that before you can pass any kind of evaluation, you need to understand from that person or that group's perspective. It could be a practice that you despise, but why are they doing it? What is their understanding of why they're doing it? Even if you want to work against the practice, you're not going to get anywhere if you don't understand that. And so that's what I think of in terms of existential. Um, it is dangerous to just discount people hmm. and say they're just stupid or ignorant and I'm just not going to be concerned about them. You do that at your own peril. That's right. And then spiritual truth, the spiritual truth of the matter, you know, where is um, structural sin at issue, perhaps? Where are issues of fallenness in myself and in some of the social systems we've created that have perpetuated this situation, perhaps? So this is what I think of in terms of listening well with those that we, you know, very much disagree with. You know, we violently disagree with them, but we still need to be listening for that empirical truth, the existential truth, and the spiritual truth in the thing. And that doesn't mean we have to embrace that, you know, what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But if we do that, if we look at, if we look at the, the empirical truth, if we look at what, what is actually being communicated, I know that even sometimes that's hard because right now people have such distrust in their news sources. Yes. You know, people, people have this, this, the fake news, you know, that's the, the buzzword that was used. And, and it just right now, it, it makes it difficult then to have a common reference point, you know, with all the conspiracy yeah. theories that, that come floating around, whether it was 2016 about all the, the Russian collusion, or even now with, with the, the voter fraud, it's like, I mean, how deep of a rabbit hole do we go before we kind of come back to say, we, we have to have some, some common ground that we can agree on when we have these mm -hmm. conversations. And if we don't have that common ground, it, it makes it very difficult to even have a, a basic starting point. So when you talk mm -hmm. about the riots and even the Capitol insurrection, which was awful, greed, yes, it's like, like there, those are, those are individuals who were pushed to the edge, but why? And, and unhealthy individuals don't know when to stop. So what was going right. on and why Why is it that, that they even thought that that, even before thinking that, that that would be a right thing, what is it that was going on inside of them that, that needs to be attended to? And how can we, with reason, attend to whatever is there? Um, and, and I think that that, but that just requires more work, doesn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, I have to say it that way. It just, yeah. It's just, that's a harder prospect. And it seems like an idealism. And, and, and I think even as I'm saying it, I'm like, well, is that even realistic, you know, to even presume that? And the answer is like, maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, we know we need laws that protect us. Obviously, those are lines that get crossed and they need to be prosecuted for sure. But what mm -hmm. do you do with that? You know, what do you, and 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 I think this goes to the, the bigger question that I have. I know we just have a few more minutes here, but sometimes 
And com- I feel, and with conversations with others, even just the topic of racism itself seems so broad. It just seems like such a a big topic that it's like, well, I, we where do we begin? Like, how do I? Yes, I can do this. Yes, I can engage. Yes, I can. I I can have conversations with 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 uh, with people of a different race and understand their their viewpoints and, and respect their their lives. And I do that. Yes. I'm not in a position where I'm hiring and firing people and, you know, uh, I'm using platforms like this to be able to have these conversations. It's like, but what more could be done? You know, I think that sometimes is, is, is the bigger question because the reality is there are a lot of social evils and we can't attend and solve all of them. You know, I, I have friends of mine who are, who are very, very, um, very dedicated to the pro-life movement, for example. And I can't every morning, you know, every Saturday morning go before the abortion clinic and say my rosary. I just, I can't do it, you know? And that doesn't make me a bad Catholic because of it, you know? But like for people who feel that that's what they, then do it, you know? Like, praise God, you can do it. But sometimes you just feel helpless by some of these massive social evils and not quite knowing like what our particular role is. And so I think some of that defeatism is what plays into this as well. It's like, well, it's not going to get any better. There's nothing I can do about it anyway. So why even engage? Um, and in I, I, I hear that. And so what do you think? Mm. Yeah. You know, I think everyone gets tired. Um, you know, <laughs> the work that I do, um, you know, trying to, to work with people who are, um, coming from a place where they're both economically and racially disadvantaged and often educationally deprived. You know, I've tried to do work in that context. Um, You do get tired, uh, you you know, and I do give myself permission to enjoy my life. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) my whole life is not a crusade. Mm -hmm. I I cannot be responsible for everyone's pain. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the same time, it is. It has been very important to me to cultivate relationships with people and to see intimately what's going on in their life, and that then helps me to see what are some of the structural factors there that need to be attended to. You know, so it is often education, employment, um, you know, the social safety net, um, and so just by knowing a few individuals who are struggling, you get you know, kind of in microcosm, what some of the larger structural problems are. Mm. Uh, I think that's where we do need community. Church communities are very important, where if you've got a church community that can be engaged in those issues, where you can, maybe you're supporting it financially, you know, um, or maybe you have more time and you're mentoring someone, you know, but I think there are different there are different levels at which we can support, but this is where I see the church being so very important, that the church needs to be engaged yes. with these issues because that is the blessing of having this diversity of gifts. Mm-hmm. Because they have this diversity of gifts and people and resources, and that's where you can come together and say, we see this need, we see this concern, And we can be advocates. We can be advocates for individuals and individual families. And we can also be advocates in speaking up in the public square and working for different kinds of policies. And I I think we've got to rely on our churches to do that. Um, But 
I don't think that often happens. You know, I think I think there are a lot of churches where it's, you know, it's kind of just very inward focused. And there again, you tend to get a lot of segregation by race and by class. You know, so I have my little group of people who are just like me, who I go to church with. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the story. I might occasionally do a charitable outreach at a soup kitchen or and I feel better about myself. But, you know, it's not like as a body we're trying to get at, well, why are these, why are so many people in the soup kitchen? You know, like what, what needs to be done so that they don't need to go to the soup kitchen? Someone needs to be asking those questions. Um, and I'm not Catholic, but this is where I really admire Catholic social teaching. Um, because the, the little that I have read of it, and I want to read a lot more, it's incredibly well thought through and, you know, just really, really um, careful thinking about systems and inequality and, you know, ways to advocate for the poor. Uh, And I think more of our churches need to avail themselves of this and really incarnate that kind of work. You know, you need the body of Christ to really be the hands and feet of that kind of work. Amen. Amen. Wow. That, that's a beautiful way to start wrapping this conversation up is a reminder that we ain't going to solve it all. Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. He came, he did it. And so it's our job to be his hands and feet and to respond in whatever way we feel that we're supposed to. And, and it may feel insignificant at times, but, uh, mm-hmm. but it's important. And regardless, even if it's a small smile, small step that you take towards more engagement, towards more understanding, towards better listening, then then you've done your job and 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 th- that's good. So, Angel, I appreciate the time that you've given me. Uh, if people have been enjoying the conversation and they would like to find out more, where, where, where can they go to, to, to get some more of the goodies that you have? <laughs> well, they can go to my website, which is angelparam.com. That's angel, as you would think it would be spelled, A-N-G-E-L, param, P as in Paul, A-R-H-A-M as in Mary.com. Sounds great. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And final question, ask all my first-time guests, Angel, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is truly that Christ has overcome and that it is not up to me to do all of this work and that hope is real. And that honestly is what gives me energy um, and keeps me from hopelessness. I mean, you know, things are difficult, true, but I am not the one who's in control. You know, Christ is ultimately in control and salvation and hope are real. Amen. Amen. Well, praise Jesus. And someday maybe we'll all be citizens of our Ar- Arlandia. Was that it? Is that the... <laughs> Hopefully not. Not not the way I should. <laughs> not the way. Not the way you did it in seventh grade. But maybe maybe it's been brushed up. Maybe the rules are a little better now. <laughs> <laughs> so, God bless you, Angel. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right, everybody. There it is. Another episode is done. So, God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. Again, it's, man, this is just a hard, hard topic to talk about because it's such a hot button issue that we can't help but get into this with some defensiveness uh, or some feeling that we have to have a quick response. But, but that's what we're trying to just hit the pause button on. We need to have dialogue first, even if it's imperfect, 
Even if it doesn't get all the points across perfectly, that's okay. But at least you're trying and you're moving in a way that you want to be able to listen and to engage in conversation. And then you start there. And then once you understand what the data says, what the experience of people are, then we can start moving into debates and conversations about policy changes and what is actually going to help move this issue forward so that we can find better opportunities for all people no matter where they come from or what their background is in our society today. Praise Jesus. God bless you all. Have a great day. Be good. Peace.